This is part one of a two-part conversation with my next guest. His chosen name is Julian Warshiel Colette. I consider it a privilege that he said yes to share a part of his adoption journey. In my opinion, his perspective on spirituality is nothing short of profound based on his lived experience. I welcomed the beautiful gift of him reading some of his pieces that can be found on his blog, Peregrine Adoptee. Many of his words are sure to resonate with you when you think about letting go of anything that is no longer serving your well-being. Allow me to introduce you to Julian, who I've gotten to know in 2021 and 2022 through the Adoptee Voices Writing Group, created by Sarah Easterly. Her episode six from season one can be heard on this podcast. Julian opens up to the adoption community with an ease and willingness to share his talent as a writer. It has been humbling to be a witness of his extraordinary personhood. He makes me think and feel long after he's spoken his truth. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Hi, Julian. I get to see your face because we're doing Zoom. This is so cool. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. Yeah. yeah. So you had good weather in California today? Yeah, great day. Sunny and warm. Yeah, had some, had, had some really good rain this weekend, so it's nice to... What oh, is the weekend? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, you know why? I, I don't... I'm not, I'm so, I'm so isolated here that I sometimes forget what, what day it is. Right. Yeah. And you know, you but bring, right. you bring to mind, yeah, the rain is just as important as the sun. Yeah. Oh, out here. Absolutely. Yeah. Fire season is no joke out here. So we definitely love the rain when we get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we met in 2021 through the Adoptive Voices Writing Group, and I've gotten to know you over this year. And I know that there's a backstory with, I feel like, you co-creating the group with Sarah Easterly. She's, she created it. Uh, but there's a really nice story that I'd like you to share with the audience about how you got connected to the adoption community and, and ended up helping Sarah say, yes, I'm going to do this group. Yeah, Sure. So in September of 2020, I was listening to a storytelling podcast and it had, it had nothing to do with adoption. So I was quite surprised when a woman began to tell the story of her trying to adopt with her husband, uh, two boys, two brothers out of foster care. They were eight and nine years old. The adoption failed, it, it, it didn't work out. The, the brothers were acting out in ways that she didn't anticipate, that she couldn't handle, and they were taken away to, to the next place, wherever that was. 
being a double adoptee and, and having been adopted at nine years old, hearing that story just, just tore the heart out of me. And it just made me realize that I am carrying so much pain and I need help. I need community. So the first thing I did was I, I Googled adoptee podcast and I, I found Haley Radke. I found her adoptees on podcast. And I, I just started binge listening to the episodes. And I think I may have heard Sarah on there. But I actually, I, I first met her in the Adoptees on Facebook group. And so we connect, we had a connection and I started reading some of her articles. I read her memoir, Searching for Mom. And we even had a phone conversation. So, so I had a rapport with her. And in the meantime, I was, you know, I was starting to write. I had started a blog and, you know, just, just so I had a format to just start writing short pieces about my adoption experience. And, you know, from, from that experience of beginning to write, I, I, I realized again, like I need company here. I mean, you've heard my writing. A lot of it is very raw, goes into some very tender topics and it's hard to be alone in that. So I wanted, I wanted company, I, you know, and also I wanted accountability. I tend to be very undisciplined in my writing. So I, I you know, I, I wanted someone to write with or a group. I wasn't sure what, but just to keep me accountable and, and give me that motivation to keep writing. And for those reasons, I reached out to Sarah and I said, do you know of any adoptee writing groups? And so she, evidently she had been thinking about this. <laughs> right. And I was the person who kind of prodded her to say like, well, I know of one that, that I want to start. So let's start it. And, and so three months later, Adoptive Voices began. And I was part of that first cohort. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that story is so fascinating to me because it just kind of reminds me that when we do show up and we share what our thoughts are or what it is that we're interested in, we never know what the next person has also been thinking about, you know, exactly. and what resonates with them. And, and this group, for me to co-facilitate with Sarah has just been an honor. You know, it's been a privilege and I've gotten to know so many, right? I didn't even know there were like over a hundred people, oh. adoptees that have been a part of Adoptee Voices over the year. Yeah. yeah, like that's amazing. And yeah. and you've been a part of the each cohort. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm so glad when Monday and Wednesdays became a thing, you chose Mondays because that's where I am and I get to hear your words. Yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned your blog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would like you to say what made you start it. It's beautifully done and and your pieces are there. And I just think it's it's just it's so well done. Sure. I like blogging. I like it because I have a short attention span. So I like writing in short chunks, short, discrete chunks. And I, I just like having something that others can read. I, I you know, I don't I don't promote it. I don't anticipate having a lot of readers, but I like the fact that I can connect through putting it online. And honestly, I just like the aesthetics. I like coming up with the images and the, the format. So I think all of that, you know, wanting a, a clear format to write in and wanting 
the opportunity to make those connections for other people to read what I write inspired me. Yes. And I like the title. Yeah. Do you want me to read the, you know, my little about blurb? Yeah. I think that really goes into the meaning of peregrine. Okay. The word peregrine connotes wandering, migration, migrant, foreigner, alien. I also have in mind the ancient Celtic practice of peregrinatio, of monks setting themselves adrift at sea in waddle boats, venturing into the unknown as voluntary exiles, relying on nothing but their spiritual faith and thirst for God. As a double adoptee, relinquished and placed for adoption after two months in foster care as an infant, and then relinquished and placed for adoption a second time at age nine, I have felt like a peregrine all my life, wanderer, exile, alien. Unlike the Celts of old, my peregrinatio was not self-chosen. Nonetheless, I was cast off from my origins on the day I was born to be passed along into the hands of strangers until I left my last adoptive family's home just shy of my 17th birthday. I have remained on peregrinatio, on pilgrimage ever since in search of self, in search of home, in search of God. Nice. Yeah. Really nice. So Julian, I I usually ask guests to start from wherever they want and share however much. But I think through your writings, you are able to really paint a a very clear picture of part of your journey as a a double adoptee. And so what piece would you choose to read to share with the audience your experience? I would start with my Dear Adoption piece. I, I wrote it during the first cohort of Adoptee Voices, and it was published on DearAdoption.com um, in November of 2021. Um, it's, a raw, it's a very raw piece, but I think it, it really captures my childhood in less than a thousand words. I think it, it's beautifully done. Yeah, I think so too. So you, you will read it for us now. Dear Adoption, are you proud of me? Am I everything you hoped I would be? I complied choicelessly when you took me from my mother's authorized 10-minute embrace the day after I was born. Such was your generosity. I did not resist when you placed me into the hands of strangers who fostered me, and then did it again two months later when I met my adopters for the first time. Why did everyone smell and sound and feel so strange? You gave no reply. You did not ask for my consent when you changed my name and falsified my birth records and hid my family from me. But I went along with your interventions as a child must. Why though, did you put me with a couple who would soon despise one another? Did you not see that coming? Oh, but I endured the divorce like a champ, buttoned my lip. Always your faithful servant. I must say, you almost broke me when my adoptive mother then decided she didn't want me anymore and relinquished me when I was nine years old. But I endured. I always endure. Being adopted a second time as an older child was pretty awful. Tough love from dear adoption. Tough it out. You changed my name and falsified my birth records again. And now two families were hidden from me by force of law 
wow, that was hard. I mean, the impressions I retain of my first family are strong and enduring, but you did succeed in stealing their names and their identities from me. Did you really think, though, that I could forget the people I knew at nine years old? Well, I tried. God knows I tried. Remember the time when my second adopters unknowingly took me to my old neighborhood, where I lived with my first adoptive mother, who I'm supposed to forget? You sure put me in some unique and challenging circumstances. Builds character, I guess. Is that what I should call you? Character builder? Anyway, we went into an ice cream shop. I was in my own world, really, trying to puzzle things out or just leave the real world behind. I was fantasizing about having the superpower of being able to disappear, to make myself invisible, when some old friends from my old elementary school walked in. Talk about awkward. You said the first nine years of my life never really happened. What was I to do? They noticed me, called me by my old name. I froze. I was trying to be faithful to you. You told me to forget my past, but you neglected to tell me that it might sneak up on me again like this. I had to wing it, which is a lot to ask of a child. Too much, really. So I just stood there, mute, numb. You really should have given me an instruction manual for such anomalies. My new adopters weren't much help either. They were as mute and numb on the car ride home as I was. Pretend nothing happened. Hey, that would make a great motto for you, don't you think? Dear adoption, pretend nothing happened. I do say, as compliant as I am, I have to question your judgment. How could you have put me with yet another couple who would come to despise one another? Was that on purpose? I guess you must have had some high expectations for building my character. Well, there was another divorce, but I was used to that by then. Getting thrown out of my house. Wait, was that my house? Well, whose ever house that was, being forcibly made houseless at 16 was a bit of a curveball, but hey, I'm made of tough stuff. You made sure of that. I walked away from my adopter's home for good with a large plastic bag of clothes and other belongings slung over my back. It was the middle of the night. I had nowhere to go. You cut me to pieces and left me bereft of family, of friendship, of kindness. You shaped me to be so utterly alone. You placed an impossible burden of forgetting on my shoulders and forced me into roles and relationships that didn't fit, that were disposable, and you disposed of me. I should call you mother. You broke me down and scrubbed me clean so that you could create me according to your own image. Surely, as I walked into that uncertain night, I had no mother but you. I slipped my hand into your cold, ghostly grip. Now it's just the two of us, you whispered, as you wrapped me in privation and ushered me into the world. What a powerful piece. Yeah. Dear Adoption. Are you proud of me? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I have to ask you, Julian, how long did it take you to create uh, such a beautiful piece about your journey? You know, to be honest, 
That piece just came. I wrote it in adoptee voices. And, uh, you know, I, I try to write from my body. I try to really tap into what, what I'm feeling. So I don't have a lot of memories necessarily, like concrete chronological memories from childhood. But I know that my body remembers. And so I try to just get into the feeling of it and let the words flow. And that one just flowed. I, I wrote it in, in a very short period of time and then just, you know, did a little cosmetic editing before I submitted it. But yeah, every, every now and then that happens. It just, it just, it just writes itself. Wow. Yeah. You're such a talented wow. writer. And, and I urge everyone to go check out Peregrine Adoptee, your blog. But I know you have um, several other pieces that I have heard, um, Love and Loss and Love Again, Double Adoptee Vertigo, Receiving My Original Birth Certificate, and then there's Spotlight, and then there's What's in a Name, and The Nothing Place Searching for Mother. And I don't know how many you're going to read. I hope you can read them all. <laughs> but I um, appreciate it. Also hearing your piece called Gift. And one of yeah. the lines that just stayed with me is, I have earned my rage. Oh, yeah. So maybe later on in our in our time together, you'll read a couple more of your pieces. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like that. And so for now, I know, you know, we had an opportunity some weeks ago, several weeks ago, to uh, have a guest in the Adoptive Voices writing group, Suzanne Stabile, and she's um, pretty famous for her knowledge about the Enneagram. And so we discovered that, well, I discovered I was a five, and then you said, I am a five too. So on the personality yeah. type, which I thought, oh, that is so cool. And I'm just, I'm, I'm learning so much and I'm excited about what I've learned. And one of the things that, uh, reading her latest book, one of the things she said is all great spirituality is about letting go. And and I remember when I read that, I thought that feels like Julian's story. Like that's a theme through your life. And, and I, too, I too believe that because I'm a minimalist, right? And so I'm constantly right. seeing what can I say no to so I can say yes to what's most important to me. And so how would you say... And I guess we can start talking about spirituality and your journey in that area that has allowed you to be able to kind of let go of things so that say no to things so you can say yes to other things. Yeah, I think the whole the whole topic of letting go is highly ambiguous for me personally. But I think as a five. Uh, yeah, fives do tend to be minimalistic. We tend to value self-reliance. And so, for instance, one of the things that I've I've done a, a lot of in my life is solo bicycle touring. So I would basically sell everything I owned if I owned anything and, you know, whatever I could carry on a bicycle. And I would travel for sometimes months at a time, bicycle camping around, around the country so for, for so much of my life, people were letting go of me in ways that were, were devastating, right? So as a, as a young adult, I loved letting go. I, lo I, I felt such a sense of power 
and being able to let go of possessions and people and just live on the road, live anywhere, live nowhere. I think you might have read, I think I, I, I mentioned one of my pieces. From the time that I left my home, or say from between 17 and, and 27 years old, I had I lived in 27 different living situations. I don't know how that's even possible. That means I was moving in some way, shape, or form, on average, more than twice a year for 10 years. I was a perpetual motion machine, just letting go, letting go, letting go, right? And so that was coming from trauma, right? So the letting go is, is ambiguous. I think I do have a capacity for letting go that is healthy. Um, and I certainly have had to grapple with the letting goes that I didn't get to choose, the losses that that happened to me. And, and that's the deep, that's the deeper challenge. I want to share a quote with you that I shared. Okay. Yeah, let me let me find it. Yeah, I just to kind of clarify that distinction, there's a quote that I love by the, the late Zen teacher, Japanese Zen teacher, Shunru Suzuki. He came to San Francisco in the 60s and started the San Francisco Zen Center and was very instrumental in bringing Zen Buddhism to the West. Here's a quote from him. Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. I love that because I, I was so attached to giving up things, right? Because I didn't want them to give up on me. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of power in that. But the, the deeper letting go of accepting that things go away, which is the theme that comes up in my writing quite a bit. My God. I mean, I think that touches such a, such a vulnerable place in me. I mean, in us all. But, you know, because of the losses that I, I endured growing up, can I, can I live fully? Can I love fully and accept that things go away? Right. Um, so that's the deeper letting go that I see at, at the heart of spirituality. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that and, and the way you put it. I totally get that. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when you did the bike tour and you did some podcasting. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, I feel like you've just lived life are living life to the fullest. Mm. Um, and I know that you shared with me your experience in a monastery. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I have several experiences in monasteries. And I would start with the first monastery that I, I spent time in. I was living in Gainesville, Florida. I was in my mid-20s, and I was doing a lot of meditation and going on meditation retreats. And I went on a meditation retreat with this Zen Buddhist teacher. She encouraged me. I had a conversation with her and she encouraged me to think about spending the summer at a monastery in Rhode Island. So I did. I took a, a, an awful Greyhound bus ride from Florida to Rhode Island. And I got there late late at night, exhausted. I think about it, like 4.30 in the morning, you know, this, this giant bell was rung. 
and I was woken up and it was still dark. And the interesting thing for me, when I recall that was, I had such a feeling of homecoming. Like I was in this crazy new situation, but it just made so much sense. Like, ah, what better way to be living than to be woken up by a bell before dawn to go meditate in community. Mm -hmm. So I had this strong monastic affinity that I discovered in my, you know, in my twenties, but I've actually spent most of my time at the monastery where I currently live. And I, I actually spent, I took temporary vows as a, as a Catholic monk in my thirties and my, yeah, I spent four and a half years in monastic training in a Catholic monastery. And 10 years later, I came back this time with my wife. So, um, as a monk, I was celibate, right? So it's quite a leap now to be living at the monastery again. And they invited us. They, you know, they contacted us because they needed people to do the housekeeping and for their retreat facilities. And we jumped at the chance. Like we, you know, my wife also loves contemplative spirituality. She loves the monastery. So, so yeah, so we work, you know, modest, you know, we work about half time and, and we pray with the monks, we live with them, we eat with them. So it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a communal lifestyle. It's for me, it's a, it's an amazing and surprising hybrid of living as a married man and still living this kind of monastic life. So monasticism has been a very strong thread in my life. Yeah. Hmm. For a long time. Yeah. It's something that you discovered really yes. works for you. And you discovered it through just living your life through the years and, and leaning into what felt right, you know, like a sense of balance for you. Yeah. In a way, I, I also feel like, again, I think, I mean, just as I talked about with the, with letting go, I, I, there's so much of my life has this ambiguity to it. So for instance, you know, I, once I learned how to meditate, I just threw myself into it. And I, I think to a degree that wasn't balanced, you know, I loved, for one thing, I loved just sitting in silence. And to be honest, I felt like meditation became the one way that I, I knew of to bring some regulation to my nervous system, because I live in a highly traumatized body. So there's a lot going on in there, right? right. And I, I, I also, you know, because I carried such so much attachment trauma, I had such difficulty with relationships and with just hmm, stepping into what most people, <laughs> young adults, are concerned with, you know, livelihood, what do I want to do with my life? Yeah, like I, you know, I, it, monasticism seems to be in my genes and I do, I'm highly motivated by a spiritual hunger. And yet the very thing that, that kind of actualizes that for me, I feel like it was also a place of hiding. You know, when I was a kid, I spent hours just sitting in my room with the headphones on because I was trying to escape. And now I spent hours, I, I spent hours sitting on a meditation cushion. 
doing more than escaping, but I think that was part of it. You know, it was part of this habit of disconnecting. And again, as a five, that's a, that's a key characteristic of how fives cope, detach, detach, detach. Yeah. Of all the types, we're the most detached from our feelings. It's not that we don't feel. Right, right. But yeah, I was like, oh, that's kind of scary. <laughs> right. And again, you know, with all that meditation, I was learning how to really be in my body and experience my, my body sensations. So on one level, I was reconnecting with my body and my emotions, but I wasn't learning how to do that in relationship, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so there was this, so again, it's this ambiguity, you know, discovering monasticism was definitely an, an integral part of discovering the real me. If, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Julian, I remember when you told me that there was a point where you decided to give your childhood to God. Oh, wow. Yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about that. I think you were in in a monastery at that time, right? Yeah, that's quite a story. You know, and I might start with just how I got here in the first place. So I was in my, I was 30 years old, 31 years old, and I was at a point in my life where I, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was just, I, I felt very lost. And I did what I do when I feel lost. I went on a bicycle tour and I made it to the California coast. And I started biking down the Pacific Coast Highway. And this might sound, we're going to get a little woo-woo, just, just a content warning. Okay. <laughs> But this is this is true. I mean, this is this is how I remember it. But I was biking down Highway One and I just kept getting this strong impression or intuition that I should I should stay at a Catholic monastery. And I wasn't I mean, I was raised nominally Catholic, but I wasn't a practicing Catholic at that time. As we shared, I spent a lot of time in Buddhist communities but it just wouldn't go away. I just, I, I, you know, it was just this, this kind of nudge that I kept feeling. And I would, I would argue with it. I, I would kind of say, like, I don't know that I want to do that. But I kept feeling it. This feeling would not let me go. And so when I actually passed by a sign for a Catholic monastery, which I didn't know existed, I had to stop, if only to just test this out. I don't know why, but I have this strong intuition that I need to stop. And so I did. And they offered me a job, believe it or not. <laughs> they offered me a job on the maintenance crew, which is a good thing because I, you know, I had no place to return to. I had no job. I was running out of money. But strangely, I decided not to. <laughs> After all of that, I I said, no, thank you. And I biked, I kept biking down the road and I camped out for the night and I woke up in the morning and I felt so depressed. I just felt so depressed. And I felt that nudge again. And I called the maintenance supervisor and said, you know what? I think I do want that job. And he said, okay, see you Monday. And I camped that night in the same spot and I, I felt such joy. Like I knew I had made a really important 
positive decision in my life, even though I didn't know what it was about. Mm -hmm. But I was just radiant that night. So the second meaningful thing that happened when I when I was living in the monastery was that I asked I asked if I could speak to the, to a monk for spiritual direction, and so I I met the man who would become my mentor for the next six years. But the first thing he asked me was, you know, when's the last time you went to confession? Of course, I hadn't been to confession since I was a little a little kid. Yeah. So I said, I don't know. <laughs> so he was like, well, let's you know, let's start with that. And, you know, I, I had no expectations. You know, I didn't come with like a laundry list of things that I had done. I just wanted to have a conversation with him. And so we did. And he got to know me better. And in the course of the conversation, we kind of boiled my core sin, if you will. And just to say the, the, the root from which the word sin comes from simply means missing the mark. So... We boiled down the, the primary way that I'm missing the mark in life as I've allowed my experiences of adoption and abandonment and abuse to define who I am. And we've talked about this earlier, and I loved how you put it. You said, it's like when I look in the mirror, I see my adopters. And that was so true. And I, I I loved how how we were able to frame that, and and I and and give that over to God. Like I need help because this is so burdensome. But I think we really clearly. I mean, it, of course, that was over twenty years ago, or about twenty years ago, and I've un, been unpacking what that means since then because I was not quite out of the fog yet. But we named clearly. You know, like how I've allowed adoption to disfigure my sense of self is the core way that I'm missing the mark in life. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, yeah. So that was really powerful. And the, the, the third, <laughs> this is where I'm a little hesitant to share, you know, just about having those experiences of feeling loved. Um, you seem to think that that's kosher. I do. To share. Yeah, okay, then I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's a, to me, it's a risk, but I'll do it. All of this was happening as a, as a kind of unexpected reinitiation into the faith that I was raised in. Mm -hmm. So kind of following that, one morning I said a very childlike prayer. It just kind of spontaneously came out of me. I asked God, if, you know, if you love me, can I get some experience of that? And afterwards, I, I just kind of forgot about it. I didn't think about it a lot. I don't even know if I remembered saying the prayer until I happened to be walking down the road. I, I live in a beautiful place where we're 1300 feet above the Pacific Ocean um, in a you know in the wilderness and it's really beautiful but I happened to be walking down the road I just had this sense that things just seemed a little more brighter and alive and you know the the animals the plants the ocean like I you know I just I was feeling it and it was you know something was something was going on. And that, that feeling continued to grow until I 
felt as if I was being mm, smothered by love. Like it, I couldn't, I, you know, I, I couldn't explain why or exactly what it was, but I just had this sensation of almost like a grandmother who hadn't seen me in ages, just smothering me. <laughs> and, and, and to be honest, that feeling, it changed. I mean, there was, there was, it, it at times it, it felt like it was coming from outside of me. Other times it felt like it was welling up from within my own heart. But that basic experience of feeling love in my body, which I probably never experienced in my life before, to be honest, lasted for, for, for weeks. Mm. It was amazing. And, you know, it, it was some, it wasn't overwhelming. I, you know, I went about my daily activities, but as soon as I would stop and get quiet, I would notice it. It would just be like, oh, there it is. So I, I was having this amazing, again, just surprising, unexpected experience of hmm, faith, you can say, discovering faith. So now we get to the point that you mentioned of turning my childhood over to God. And to me, this is the most meaningful of all of these experiences. Again, I was just following my intuition. I, I, I just had the sense of like, wow, I want to turn my childhood or I even, I, I, plural, my childhoods over to God. Because I, don't, I, can't, carry the, I can't carry them alone anymore, right. you know? And so what I did was I, I had planned this on my all on my own. I didn't talk to my mentor about it. You know, we would typically meet in, in his, where he lives and he has an altar there. So I imagined the two of us praying together at his altar and I wrote a prayer. And then I just wrote stream of consciousness, like just things that I re recalled from my childhood. And so what I planned was that after we'd said the prayer, I would read, I would read this to him as a way of, of just offering my child to God. You know, you take it. <laughs> like, I, mm -hmm, like, this mm -hmm. is a lot. Yeah. This is a lot to bear. So the interesting thing was that I didn't tell my, my mentor, my spiritual director, what I had planned. And we, we, we kept having to postpone it for various reasons. And so finally, we, we meet. And I explain to him what I, what I intend to do. We do it. Uh, we, you know, we, we gather at his altar. And again, just spontaneously, I had this impulse to start lighting candles. And he had all of these candles at, on his altar. I'm saying parts of the prayer, I'm lighting a candle, saying another part of the prayer, lighting another candle. And then with the candles burning, I, you know, I read to him what I wrote. And at the end of it, he, he was silent for a moment and asked me if I knew what day it was. And I said, it's, it's Saturday. And then he said, well, actually, it's the day that in the Catholic Church, we celebrate Mary and Joseph, the mother of Jesus, offering Jesus 
as a baby in the temple. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I'm a strong believer in synchronicity and meaningful coincidences. Mm -hmm. And this was so powerful. Not only that, but if I would have gotten up for morning prayer at 5.30 in the morning with the monks, I would have witnessed them all lighting taper candles and bringing them to the altar in the chapel and placing them before the altar, just like I had done at my spiritual director's altar. It was powerful affirmation. And for me, I, I often think of this whole series of experiences as my unadoption experience or my anti-adoption experience because in contrast to being adopted I had agency the whole time you know I felt this invitation but I felt no compulsion you know I didn't have to stop at the monastery I didn't have to offer my childhood to God I didn't have to I chose to right I chose I chose to offer myself yes you know what I'm thinking of, right? I don't want to break your stride, but I'm thinking oh, sure. of of uh, your peace gift. I'm thinking yeah. of that. Huh. Hmm. Do you plan on reading gift? I do. I wanted to say one last thing. Okay. I'm um, just in line with this because one of the one of the fruits of of these experiences was maybe a year later. I, I chose to enter monastic formation. So I, t- I chose to be trained as a monk. During that time, I discovered the writings of Julian of Norwich. She's a 14th century English mystic. And her writings, more than anything I've encountered, really spoke to, to what I experienced and how I experienced God. And more specifically, she writes very eloquently about God as mother. And, and, and I was deeply moved by that. So when I became a novice monk, I changed my name. You know, up until that time, I had been Tony. And it's a tradition, you know, when, when a monk becomes a novice or when a monk in training becomes a novice, they have the option of changing their name. And that was so meaningful to me, right? Because I've had my name changed three times already, or I've had three different names. My my first mother named me, my first adopters named me, my second adopters named me. Finally, I am naming me, right? And again, how anti-adoption is that? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So I had this whole experience of God as mother and God receiving me as mother and out of that, I even got to choose my name. Yeah. So I, I love all of that. Like all of that is so foundational for me now. Even 20 years later, I love the name Julian. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did too. I would like to read Gith. This was written in adoptee voices and you heard the first draft. For me, this was written around the holidays and the prompt was to write a kind of fantastic tale about the holidays, uh, you know, as as an adoptee. And man, like, do I hate, I mean, (laughs) again, ambiguity. I love 
Christmas. I love Easter because they have so much spiritual meaning for me, right? But from my past, like, wow, like I hated the holidays. So I, you know, when the, when the prompt was given, I could feel my anger. I could feel my rage. So I was just like, ah, I'm going to just, you know, go through my memories with a baseball bat. <laughs> you know, that was my attitude. Right, right. And that's how I started to write. But as I was writing, like, I, no, this isn't, this isn't what's, what's calling me. Like, what, what am I really moved to write? And so the beauty of this piece is that I'm I'm wrestling with that out loud, right? And I was surprised by the end, by the ending. The ending moved me to tears. And I think I even teared up when I read it the first time. Mm-hmm. So I, I love this piece because I think it's such a it's such an important question. As I say in that piece, like, you know, I've earned my rage. We've earned our rage. So what do we do with it? Right. Yeah. Mm. So I want to break things. I want to unravel this whole stupid farce of pretending I belong, of trying so hard to adapt, to keep smiling, to submit to this charade for other people's benefit, to submit to this charade in order to survive. Holiday celebrations from childhood reside in my memory like a great throbbing wound of disjointed impressions, sharp to the touch. Among the family of my first adopters who adopted me as an infant, I innocently played along. After they relinquished me nine years later and I was adopted a second time by another family, fuck you and your lasagna dinner and Christmas tree with presents sprawling beneath and loud intrusive voices pounding my eardrums while I drowned in humiliation, alone and unseen. I want to disappear. I want to flee to where I can truly be myself, where I don't feel reduced to a role to meet other people's needs. I want to rampage through my memories with a baseball bat. Destroy, destroy, destroy what destroyed me. I've been wrestling with rage a lot lately. Rage exercises a strange allure, projecting the illusion of power where I was once powerless to escape or prevent harm, when neither fight nor flight were possible. Rage at unbearable privation and the indifference of those on whom I depended. Rage my avenger, rage my defender. I have earned my rage. I have earned my rage. My rage is my own, I claim it. Therefore, I no longer need to be driven by it. Do I want to continue to live inside of rage? Do I want to continue to bind myself to people, situations, and institutions that have not earned the privilege of inhabiting my heart? Now I get to choose. This is my holiday fantasy, my tale to tell, at play in the field of memory. It's Christmas Eve. I crouch in darkness, hidden, waiting, nearby where my adopters are parking their car on this city street aglow with strings of colored lights. I tighten my grip on the baseball bat. They get out of the car and make their way to the house 
where people are celebrating, where the woman adoption compelled me to call grandmother lives. I ready myself to pounce, my legs trembling with the impulse to run out, leap on top of their car and smash, smash, smash. Smash the windshield, smash everything in sight, smash the Christmas trees and colored lights and decorations and lasagna dinners and presents spilling over the living room floor. This is my night. But before I can move, a deeper impulse beckons. Unclear at first, but strong with the pulse of real strength. Not dependent on taking power back from anyone else, but on recognizing that I don't have to give them my power in the first place. Not anymore. I stand up slowly as insight dawns and the rush of adrenaline subsides. The crisis is over. The catastrophe has already happened. Why continue to live in its shadow? I take a deep breath. I listen to the sounds of nearby traffic, the laughter of children, wind gently whispering through tree branches overhead. Many colored lights glitter before me like a kaleidoscopic universe. The cold, crisp winter air plays across my face. This is my night. This is my gift to myself. I drop the baseball bat and walk away. Mm. I think I like it even more each time I hear it. And and there again, I'm I'm hearing letting go. I'm hearing letting yeah. go. Yeah, and I'm feeling it. I, it. It's still powerful to read. I mean, when I was in the anger part, like my fists are, were clenched. And I, you know, like I, you know, and I'm starting to tear up as I, as I get to that, the end. I mean, what a gift we can give to ourselves if we can. It's not easy, right? Right. But to drop the baseball bat and walk away. Absolutely. We don't need, yeah. I mean, rage, you know, there's a place for rage, but I think at some point we need to let it go. We need to let it go. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard journey. I hope you will return to hear part two, the conclusion of my conversation with Julian. He will share more of his written words that you're more than likely to enjoy and ponder. We co-created this experience together with intentionality for growth on many levels. He and I believe you will benefit from our risk-taking and vulnerability during both episodes. It is my knowing that that's where the magic happens. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.